I'm Larry Woodard, and this is Admire. My guest today is an investor, philanthropist, and founder, chairman, and CEO of the United States' largest minority-run mutual fund firm, Ariel Investments. John, welcome to the podcast. Glad to glad to join you. Look, given what's going on in the world right now with COVID-19, the pandemic, and the world financial markets, it's going to take all the discipline I have uh, to set the stage first by taking our listeners through your background before we dive into current events. Now, I believe Barry Switzer coined the phrase, born on third base. With accomplished parents, your mom was a lawyer, your dad's a lawyer, and later a judge. You grew up in the Hyde Park area of Chicago. Do you feel like you were born on third base? Oh, I, I guess that's fair. Um, you know, I wasn't born on third base from a wealth standpoint. I think my parents are solidly middle class, um, you know. But they were both these extraordinary pioneers. And my mom being the first African-American woman to graduate from the University of Chicago Law School. And my dad being an original Tuskegee Airman who flew over 100 missions. And so having these two pioneering parents who were very strong, very independent, I think had a profound impact on my life. It's interesting because in in many ways, it doesn't really matter if you feel like you were born on third base because being an African-American carries with it built-in obstacles. Um, You go to a great high school. You attend an Ivy League college, Princeton. At what point in your early life do you consider your awakening, that is, an understanding that you were going to have to participate heavily in your own success if there was to be one? Well, I think my... um Awakening happened while I was my at my first job at William Blair, uh, which is a largest regional investment banking firm here in the Chicago area. Uh, I was the first African American uh, executive to work there, a professional to work there, and I realized pretty quickly that even though they had been very kind to me and uh, Ned Donata, the managing partner, had gone to Princeton and was just very supportive of everything I was trying to do, I just realized I was kind of a fish out of out of water, mm-hmm. you know. And that if I was going to really leave a legacy and, and sort of meet my own goals of doing something special with my life, I'd, I'd have to be an entrepreneur and I have to go out and start my own business. And I think part of the awakening also is we had these tremendous pioneers in Chicago who are great role models. John Johnson, who had mm-hmm. built up you know Ebony and Jet Magazine, George Johnson, who had created Afrosheen and Ultrasheen. These are these you know dynamic folks who are employing lots of people, making a difference in the community, empowering our political leaders. You couldn't help but want to follow in their footsteps. I, I think that it's very interesting that you, you said that I worked uh, at Leo Burnett, you know, and they're on 35 West Wacker. And uh, I know that uh, I heard a great story once about Leo Burnett and John Johnson and how John rode the train every single day. You know, just to to encounter and to ask for business from Leo Burnett and uh, how he just had to persevere for, I believe it was years before he got his first even opportunity. Um, uh, Let's back up for a second to Princeton. So you were uh, an economics major there, but also on the basketball team. How did each experience shape John Rogers, the entrepreneur in business? Well, well, I think being an economics major there... um you had to read uh, a random walk down Wall Street that was written by the head of the economics department at the time, Bert Malkiel. Mm-hmm. And that book became an iconic book that's been uh, reprinted over 10 times. And reading about uh, his views on the market, his views on the economy, how to be a successful investor had a big impact on me. Because up until then, I'd sort of been a fledgling investor, sort of going hither and yon, trying different concepts and 
had a broker across the street from campus and a broker back home in Chicago and mm-hmm. playing the options market and, you know, trying all kinds of things. And reading that book had a big, big impact and influenced me, you know, in a major, major way. Um, and understanding and learning about efficient markets and how hard it is to outperform in the stock market is just was so helpful at that early stage of my life. Um, and the other thing, again, playing basketball at Princeton also changed my life. Uh, I played for Hall of Fame coach Pete Carrill, who taught you that uh, you had to not only work hard, but you had to be committed to excellence every moment you were on the court. And that was such an important lesson. He didn't accept second best or pass a little bit off or cut a little bit off or screen a little bit off. Everything had to be done exactly the right way every single time. And he also, of course, pounded in the importance of thinking about your teammates first. And the kind of unselfishness that he taught us about was really transformative to someone like me who who grew up as an only child and everything had been about me. And now to learn that everything's more important, the team is more important than everything else, mm-hmm. um, was very, very profound for me. Uh, I, I like the way you're talking about it because it sort of falls into the next the next question. You know, a friend of mine, former offensive lineman for the Jets, DeBrickishaw Ferguson, he talks about how important it is when you're a pro to understand your role on the team. It is, he believes, more important than talent. I thought about that because you're described um, by some people as being quiet and you downplay your athletic talent, yet you've had the chance to be on the court with President Obama, and there's an exquisite piece of video on the internet showing you legitimately beating Michael Jordan in a one-on-one game at a three, um, uh, to three at a fantasy basketball camp. To what do you attribute your success on the court, and whatever that is, is it directly related to your success off the court? I think the thing that um, when Coach Carrillo kept me on the team, I, mean, I was not a great player by any means. And I literally, by just total, you know, very good fortune, I got to be captain of the team. I got to stay and play all four years. But I think the thing that he would say about me was that I was uh, extraordinarily competitive. I worked really, really hard. And I was determined, you know, to do what I could to help the team succeed. So I think that, that that determination was something that I think he saw in me and wanted me around. And I think they thought that having someone who could fit into the team was part of your perspective. But not, I didn't, it wasn't about me. I was just there to help the team get better and play really, really hard and guard the best players and help make them better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was something that uh, was really an important lesson. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, you just sort of learn when you play there that you get as much pleasure helping a teammate succeed than succeeding yourself at scoring the basket. And um, and he, he really wanted those kind of players around, people who were going to fit in, and uh, it wasn't about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you continue to play basketball in three-on-three leagues. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's, quite a, it's been quite a while since I've been able to play. You know, I, I had my hip uh, replaced uh, and uh, gotten a little too old for it. But the really cool thing about it is that um, as the years went on and my teammates got older, like Craig Robinson, mm-hmm. who played at Princeton, was a great player, and Kit Miller, and Arnie Duncan, the former Secretary of Education, and, and, and many other players who primarily have played the Princeton basketball system, um, we used to go and play 10 tournaments a year all over the country. And we got to be one of the best three-on-three teams in the United States playing in the old hoop-it-up tournaments. Yeah. But more information you need, as the years went on, we replaced ourselves with younger 
people who are familiar with the Princeton offense. And this last uh, couple of years, our current three-on-three team has been ranked in the top 10 in the world. And um, we are heavily favored to make the Olympic team this year. And it's sort of a direct descendant from the way that we played and the team that we put together. And those guys recruited the next generation. Those guys recruited the next generation. And we helped sponsor the team from time to time and helped coach the team from time to time. And it's been a thrill to see uh, these guys uh, take that Princeton system and um, literally be one of the best teams in the world. That's lovely. That's that's a great, great um, story and a great outcome so far. You know, I was a, a yeah. soccer player, and uh, I continued as long as I could. And I was playing competitive soccer, um, you know, in leagues around New York City, even in my 40s. But it has started every time we got on the field, somebody had, you know, a, a career, all life-altering uh, an accident. And I said, you know, it's only a matter of time before that's me. I mean, we were seeing it clearly <laughs> everything every single week. Uh, so I finally got out. Uh, I did the same thing. I had a, a, an indoor soccer team. And I've tried to keep my fingers in it however I can, which, you know, gives you some pleasure. Um, but, the, but the fact of the matter is, is that uh, sport is, is amazing. And uh, it's, it's always great to be able to keep in it. Um, now, just moving to, to sort of some current events here. I saw an interview during what you called the Great Recession, a hurricane of a financial crisis. If that was a hurricane, and this morning I read where we now have more than 30 million unemployment claims, what do you call what's happening now? Well, it is a, uh, I don't know how to describe it, except being that this is the worst crisis that I've ever faced. Uh, and it came on so quickly. So yeah. it's like a Tommy and um, it's just been so, so massive. And it's the worst we've had since the Great Depression. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. And I think what makes it especially tough is this is coming so closely to the last financial crisis. Yeah. You were just starting to feel some confidence building again, and then to see it just crater like this, it's just been devastating. Yeah, I was uh, on the road. I was in California in uh, in late March and um, um, also in Denver and had just signed two really significant pieces of business. And I said, boy, we're, we're set. We are really set. <laughs> and, and I get home, and probably less than a week later, we're sheltering in place. And uh, those guys, obviously, I mean, one of the, the companies lost about 85% of its I- income year on year. Uh, and uh, they're, they're just really sucking wind, trying to figure out whether or not one had just done a, a, a round two raise of a lot of money. Now they're trying to figure out whether or not they stay in business or whether they use that cash to buy what's going to be out there, you know, when, uh, when, when we get started again. Um, so it really is... Crazy. Um, so you started Aerial Investments at 24 years old. You have an investing strategy that's deliberate and methodical. Does that work during these times? And what should investors be thinking and doing? Well, I think that our strategy is helpful in, in this time. Mm-hmm. You know, we've always believed in being value investors and so not overpaying for the companies that we invest in, buy them at bargain prices. And we are also uh, have a, a logo that's a turtle. Mm-hmm. That reminds you the way to be successful is to think long term and be patient, like that form of that famous tortoise in the beating uh, the hare right. in that famous Aesop's fable. So that long term perspective, I think, is very helpful when you go through these horrendous times in the marketplace, because we keep looking out and asking the companies that we invest in, do you have the financial strength to weather the storm 
and still be in business two, three, and four years down the line. And then we're looking out over that horizon to say, we're going to try and invest in those companies that we know are going to do really well once we get back to normal and not get too swept up in the emotions of the moment. The thing I always remind people of is the greatest investor of all time is Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. And he always reminds us that last century, the Dow Jones started at 66 and ended at over 11,000. And if you think about it, that 100-year period included a pandemic, as we know now, two Great Depression, I mean, one Great Depression, two world wars, war in Vietnam, all types of tragedies and crises that happened last century. And the Dow just kept climbing higher, inevitably recovering from whatever the circumstances happen to hit the markets. So uh, having that mindset that we'll get through this, this will end too, is an important, I think, skill and mindset to be able to be successful in this type of an environment. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. You know, I um, when uh, the first uh, year that uh, in his first term that Barack Obama took office, I was sitting in my office in Manhattan and Countrywide had my mortgage General Motors was 85% of my, um, you know, my, my salary, uh, my, you know, my client base, but they were, they were 85% of my income and they're sitting there just about a bankruptcy. Um, my investment company was, was on the ropes and, um, you know, and I just really thought there's almost no way to maneuver this thing. You know, I mean, we're just, we're just out of luck. And in a hundred days, you know, we had set, uh, you know, he had really set things in motion, uh, for quick recovery for us. As a matter of fact, um, we got pulled out of line as an advertising agency because we were so important for uh, for uh, Detroit. And so they had to make three-year contracts with us and uh, and our money was guaranteed, all of that media money that we, we spent, you know, for the car companies to be able to market their product. Um, and to your point, uh, we got through it. You know, what makes this more difficult to, to even think through is the fact that, you know, People talk about the new normal, which nobody knows yet what that's going to be. But whatever it's going to be, you know, there are companies that have to have enough dry powder to get to the future. You know, and like everybody else, we've sat down with our, you know, our our financial consultants and said, okay, well, this is how many months we can go. We can pay salaries for this many months. We can we can hold out for this many months. And after that, something's got to happen. We can try to get to the future with the kinds of services and the products we, we do. But if we're going to survive in any way, shape or form, eventually we have to know that we're going to have to be able to do business in some way like we were doing business before. So none of us has a crystal ball. But how do you see the economy returning to growth? And how long is it going to take? And what industries do you think are going to represent the green shirts? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm optimistic that uh, we've seen the worst and that we'll start to, you know, come back, you know, after we get through May. I think this next month will be a tough one, but with company, you know, with states already opening up, that'll just continue into June. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you're going to start to see, as we know, what's happening in New York already. You see, we're going down the downside of the mountain. Right. You know, the deaths are getting smaller every day. The hospitalizations are getting smaller every day. And I think you're going to look out five, six weeks from now, and you're going to find out that we're going to be pretty close to zero when it comes to deaths and new infections. Mm-hmm. And that'll give people confidence to go out and shop again again, and, and be in public places and go to restaurants and enjoy dinner. I think it'll be surprising how quickly we get back to normal. I know that's not the conventional wisdom, 
I, I know that, and I'm on a bunch of boards and in lots of meetings where everybody's worried about it coming back in the fall and us taking you know a year or two to get back. But I, I'm a much more optimistic person uh, from what I see from the data and what I've studied. I also think that you know, when it comes to specific industries, you know, we're trying to find industries that got hurt the worst, but have really great prospects for the future. So examples would be uh, we own shares in the new Madison Square Garden Entertainment mm-hmm. that owns the iconic Madison Square Garden, the Chicago Theater, all the land around the garden in New York City, you know, right there in Midtown. We think that stock is substantially undervalued, and people will start going back to the garden sometime this year to see sporting events, to see concerts, to you know, see all the things that show up there. Mm-hmm. So that's a favorite. Um, we own Vail, uh, a similar vein. Um, you know, there are people who are diehard skiers. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not building any new mountains in this country or, right. or around the world. And so they're really well positioned, we think, to benefit, even though they got hit hard during this you know, financial crisis. And they've got the financial strength to weather the storm, and they'll be back to normal next winter. And then just a couple of other ones. You know, we, we love um, the financial services companies that are really cheap, uh, companies like CBRE that does you know, commercial mm-hmm. uh, real estate leasing and outsourcing and uh, capital markets business. Uh, we, we love uh, companies like KKR that are in private equity, one of the biggest in the world in private equity. Bazaar, the major investment bank that's headquartered in New York. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of friends that work there, like Bill Lewis and mm-hmm. Vernon Jordan and uh, Ken Jacobs. So that's just, those are some of them. And my final, final favorite one is a company called Invistia that is in the dental, dental products uh, manufacturing business. And so they got crushed, like all these companies have gotten crushed. They got crushed because dental offices were closed and people weren't buying new dental products. But of course, you know, we're going to need good dentists when we get through this. And some people can, you know, some people have to go more often because they, you know, some things have deteriorated during this period. Mm -hmm. So we think they'll be able to follow up and do well. COVID-19 has presented not just a financial challenge, but perhaps even more so a mental one. Sheltering in place is hard. Doing business while sheltering in place is difficult, even for the most tech-savvy among us. You famously don't use a computer. What's the past <laughs> month? What's the past month been like for you? You know, it's um, I'm suffering through a little bit of. I've done the Zoom thing um, on my phone a couple yeah. of times, just a couple of times, and I did a couple of video shows that my staff came over and set something up for me. Mm-hmm. But I'm still resistant. I still don't have a computer. I'm, you know, I don't like being on Zoom and having people staring at me, and <laughs> it's just so, so uncomfortable. Uh, I don't like it. So, but otherwise, it's, it's I'm, you know, I'm getting a lot of work done. It's, it's, I'm getting on all the conference calls, calls with all the management teams that we invest in. Um, I just got off the phone with Michael Roth from IPG, yep. which I know, yeah. an I know industry Michael. you know well. Yeah. Um, you know, I have have several management calls a day now, um, which is just great. And research analyst, and then almost daily now research meetings with my own team. So I think I'm finding we're more productive than ever. Mm-hmm. You know, not traveling everywhere and being pulled into this committee and this board meeting and fly here and fly there. I'm getting a lot done. And 
Yeah, you may have been the smartest of all of us. You know, I am with my company, especially with young people. It's really, really, really hard to get them to understand the fundamentals that make a company work. So a couple of times a month, you know, we would shut down the computers and the whole nine yards, open everybody's door and say, listen, you're going to have to figure out how to visit your clients or or talk to people on the phone or meet with each other. And you have to literally do that. Otherwise, they'll never come out of their offices and they'll talk to everybody via text on their phone. They don't even want to talk to them. So so it is a a different thing. And I do think that the skill set that, that, you know, your discipline has given you is probably helping you rather than hurting you during this time. Yeah, I have less distractions than most. And I'm not spending my afternoon, you know, responding to emails that I got all day long. It's been a very, very good, again, at saving valuable time. Yeah. So uh, I've saved the... uh, the, the big question, the elephant in the room question for, for the last question. And, and I want uh, to, to make sure that you understand, I'm not asking you to talk politics, but rather process and fallout. You know, you've been involved, I know, with the Obama uh, organization, have seen some presidential elections up close and personal. This election promises to be one of the most contentious ever. It's going to come down to voting. So many states don't even have a plan in place for how exactly that's going to happen. Do you have any thoughts about the upcoming election and the best case scenario as it relates to America's financial future? Well, I think it's clear that we we need to get a president who can come in and hire the surround himself with the best talent, mm-hmm. strong professionals, scientific experts, technology experts, business experts, and people who are strong and will stand up to him or her, uh, whoever the president ultimately becomes, mm-hmm. and and whoever the vice president becomes. So I think it's more critical than ever that we get the best and the brightest into government and have them there to help us get us through this pandemic and whatever the next crisis happens to be. Um, I do think that, um, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's, it's hard for, uh, it's going to be hard for, you know, all of us to learn how to, you know, maybe vote in a different way and engage in our political process in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, unfortunately, it helps the incumbent who's got this, you know, television show every afternoon where right, he can right. get on and have everyone look at him. But at the end of the day, I think the American people do the right thing. I think people are tired of this sort of craziness, the dishonesty, and are going to want to get back to normal. And I think, you know, Joe Biden represents kind of a, a, a kind of strong, comfortable political leader who was experienced and knowledgeable and will surround himself with terrifically talented people. So that's my hope. And, um, you know, that's what I'm engaged in today is trying to help him as best I can. Right. Right. Look, this has been a whirlwind of, of an interview. Um, for every question that I asked, believe me, there were three questions unasked. Um, and that pretty much guarantees that it, that if you will, I'll have you back on the show. Um, and I, I thought to finally do this after, you know, writing for ABC News for years and years and years because I had the studio and no people. Uh, but it has turned out to be wonderful. I've talked to some amazing folks and um, and uh, gotten some really good insights, um, you know, yours among them. Uh, so be safe. And uh, and I thank you for, for coming on the show. Well, thank you for including me. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. This is Admire. I'm Larry Woodard. Thank you.